Give It Up sermon series. Um, if you've missed our sermon series up to this point or missed parts of it, I, I suggest you go back and listen to at least the first message in the series, but I, I suggest all of them. We post them on our podcast, on our Facebook page, and on our YouTube page for you to review and see if you've missed church um, so you can catch up with the series. Um, we've been going through what it means to simplify the Christian life and focus on the things that really matter. Um, so if you remember back in week one, we talked about how the Christian life is full of temptation. Satan is always coming against us, um, but Jesus, by his temptation in the wilderness, showed us that we can defeat Satan's temptation by his power and by his victory that he won for us there. Um, second week, we talked about our words and how our heart is constantly overflowing with evil, and it shows in our words, and that the only solution is not to fix your words, but to fix your heart. And so the Christian life is always going back to the source of God's word and filling up our heart with those words. Um, week three, we talked about how the Christian life is not always comfortable, um, that a Christian life is one that is constantly growing, stretching, changing, being challenged, and that it does not always leave you where you want to be, um, but instead pushes you forward, challenges you to live a more uh, God-centered life. And then last week, we talked um, about the, ca- the quintessential characteristic of the Christian life, with which, if you weren't here, you'll have to go back and watch it. No, it was repentance. We talked about repentance and how that is the quintessential characteristic of the Christian life, that a Christian is constantly being uh, willing to acknowledge their sin before God and also acknowledge their Savior and believe in Him. Um, so we're going to finish up this series by looking at what our expectations are for the Christian life and how Jesus reshapes those expectations. And, and to do that, we're going to go through a text from John chapter 12. Um, which we're actually taking a little bit out of order, uh, but it's important for you to understand uh, because it shows you what's going to happen when Jesus dies on the cross. Um, I, I kind of connect this to like, if you've seen the movie The Sixth Sense, you kind of watch that movie twice, right? You watch it the first time all the way through, and then you find out the ending, and then you have to watch the whole thing again, and you, you connect the ending to everything that happens. Maybe if you've seen that movie, you, you, can, you can follow me. Um, the same kind of thing is happening with Jesus. Jesus is saying some kind of cryptic stuff But if you remember that Jesus' ultimate goal is to get to the cross, well, then it starts to make a lot more sense, and it helps us focus on what Jesus is here to do. Um, So I'll read that text for you. I'll project it on the screen. If you want to follow along in your Bible app on your phone, or if you brought your Bible, that's great too. John chapter 12, starting at verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. 
Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man will be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while, while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. This is the gospel of the Lord. And if I can just be uh, upfront with you, this is going to be a difficult text for us. Um, not a difficult text because it's hard to understand. I, I think actually as we go through it, you'll find it's pretty clear. The struggle for us is that it's going to uh, challenge the way that we uh, form our expectations around the Christian life. Um, everybody comes to the Christian life with expectations, and we really come to just about any situation with expectations. You can think of everything from the basic drive-through to your marriage. You have expectations of how things are going to happen, right? And when those expectations aren't met, you're often very frustrated. So Jesus says, let's set expectations for the Christian life. But they're going to be challenging. They're not going to be comfortable. They're not going to be easy. They're going to make you think. They're, they're going to make you reevaluate and reprioritize. And Jesus is going to do that, I think, in three points here. Um, three points that you have in your bulletin outline, which we'll fill in as we go through. He gives an unexpected answer, an unexpected prayer, and an unexpected call. Actually, that's a, that's a misprint in your bulletin, and that's my fault. It should say the third program per, uh, point should be unexpected victory, so you should take your pen and cross it out right now for me. Sorry about that. I think I changed it after I had the bulletins printed. So unexpected answer, unexpected prayer, unexpected victory. So first, unexpected answer. Um, the text starts with Jesus being called by these Greeks who are in the area. Uh, they come to Jesus' disciple Philip and say, we want to see Jesus. And from the text that we read, it, it's probably hard to figure out exactly why they want to see Jesus. Um, but if you back up actually a, a couple verses to verse 18 of this chapter, uh, Scripture tells us why they were looking for Jesus. Um, it says, many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. What is this sign? Um, the sign is that Jesus has just raised Lazarus, his friend from the dead. Um, so it seems pretty clear that these people are looking for Jesus because they want to see him do something awesome, right? As he kind of has been through his whole ministry up to this point, doing miracles, healing, fixing things, um, people want to see that. And if I told you that this was a 21st century crowd, would you believe me? It's pretty similar, actually. First century, people searching for Jesus, hoping that he'll do a miracle, do something special or amazing that they can all look at and and be wowed. 21st century, churches that are looking for a special dispensation of God's grace, a stirring of the Holy Spirit, a new revelation, some miracles of healing. Sound similar? It's pretty rare that you find a church today who has on their sign, yep, we're just an ordinary church, just a bunch of people with sinful natures gathering around to hear how we're saved from them. That was just an ordinary church preaching the gospel. Pretty ordinary church, a bunch of bad people trying to get over our sins against each other by the forgiveness that God gives us. Um, that stuff doesn't sell, right? It doesn't make people want to 
try out your church. It's basic. It's not flashy. But it's what the world wants, right? They want amazing, miracle-working, flashy Jesus. Uh, But Jesus gives an unexpected answer to those people. He says this. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces very many seeds. So what's he saying? Well, the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified is the moment when he is going to show why he came. Um, if you track through the whole Gospel of John, you'll hear him use this phrase, the hour, the hour, the hour. But he always keeps saying, the hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. Now he says, the hour has come. Which maybe sounds awesome right away. You're like, all right, here we go. Jesus is going to put it on. Except for what he says next, right? Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it only remains a single seed. These people come to Jesus saying, Jesus, show us the glory. And Jesus says, you want to see glory? I'm going to die. That's glory. He compares himself to a single seed, right? If you just hold a little dry seed, like when you get in the little packets at the garden store, right? Little seeds, not very impressive. But if you put it in the ground, it becomes something beautiful, right? Jesus says the same thing is true about him. By himself, he's just one man. And even though he's working amazing miracles, if that's all he's going to do, he'll just go into the history books as this amazing miracle-working man who lived for a little while, and that was that. But he says if he dies, then something big is going to happen. That he, like a seed, is going to produce much fruit, right? So are you tracking here with Jesus? People come to him saying, we want to see the glory. Jesus says, I'm going to die. That's the glory. If you're taking notes with us, that's the first fill in the blank. The unexpected answer that Jesus gives to these people is, I'm going to die. Now, you might think to yourself, that doesn't seem like glory. Dying actually seems pretty shameful and dark and not glorious at all. And if that's what you think, then maybe you don't understand God's economy. God thinks the most glorious thing in the world is to give, right? Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. Think back to the creation. Why did God create the world at all? Because he wanted to give. He was doing just fine by himself without human beings, but he created them so that he could give to them. Book of 1 Corinthians says that man is God's glory. Why? Because he gets to give to him, right? And so when Jesus says, I'm going to die on the cross and that's going to be my glory, it's because he's giving something amazing, right? So he finds the most glory not in living for this world, but in being willing to give it all up for the sake of, well, you. See, what Jesus wants you to understand is that the Christian life is not one of amazing, miraculous signs, amazing healings that make you feel better. It's not about fixing your emotional trauma or getting all the dark skeletons out of your closet. It's, it's about his death for you. And in turn, then, your life for everyone else. He says this, Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, and anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So what he wants you to understand is that his posture 
was one of, my life is mine to give away, and I am going to give it away. Is your life one that you give away? Now, I'm not saying that you need to die for anybody. In fact, that's the message of the gospel, that you don't have to die for anybody, not even yourself. But do you live for other people? Do you give up your life for the sake of the people around you? Maybe in small ways, and maybe sometimes in big ways, but certainly not in the same way that Jesus did. To have everything and be willing to give it up. The unexpected answer that Jesus gives is the unexpected answer we should give. That when people in this community or people outside this community demand things from us, we are willing to give. Because Christ was the first to give. To give up everything. Give up his life so that you could live forever. So that's the unexpected answer. Let's talk about the unexpected prayer. Um, Jesus says this, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I've glorified it and I will glorify it again. I think we need to remember that Jesus is completely human here. We have a a vision of Jesus that he's kind of this superhero type character. Yeah, he's true man and true God, but like he's a totally awesome man, right? And that he can take on anything. It's like chain breaking and like smashing doors in, not physical doors, but spiritual doors, right? But we forget that Jesus was a normal guy, right? With normal emotions, normal thoughts like you have, just they were perfect without sin, right? And so you hear Jesus' heart right here in this text, right? He says, my soul is troubled. (laughs) This is bothering me. It's bothering me that I'm going to go have to die because death is not fun. It's not what was meant to be. It's not pleasant. It's painful. But you got to admire the moxie on Jesus, don't you? Jesus is like, man, this is going to be the worst. But you know what? I'm going to do it because it's what needs to be done. And so he prays an unexpected prayer to God. He asks, what should my prayer be? Shall I pray to God that he take me out of this because it's going to be hard and be painful? Nope. This is why I came. Father, glorify your name. Well, how does God get glory? Well, if you're paying attention, by giving, right? And so when Jesus asks the Father to glorify his name, what he's really asking is, Father, crucify me. I know it's not going to be pleasant. I don't really want to go through that, but I know I have to, so so Father, do it to me. Let that pain come on me so that these people can be blessed. If you're taking notes, that's the next fill in the blank. The unexpected prayer from God is, crucify me. It's completely counterintuitive, right? Most of our prayers are, Father, deliver me from this. Father, let this stop. Make this go away. Jesus says, bring it on. Now, it should do two things, right? Um, it, it, first of all, should make us marvel at Jesus' amazing grace. Because he doesn't ask to be crucified for attractive, worthwhile people. He asks to be crucified for us. People who are constantly thinking of ourselves. 
constantly trying to make our own lives better at the expense of others. Finding every way to get ahead in the world. And yet Jesus says, Father, crucify me for them. But the second thing that it should do is also draw our attention to our own prayers. When the marriage is falling apart, what do you pray for? Uh, When the money is seeming to run out, what do you pray for? When your body isn't getting better, what do you pray for? When your kids aren't acting the way you wish they would, what do you pray for? Do you pray that God would deliver you or that he would glorify his name? Now, I'm not saying the two are mutually exclusive. Sometimes it is God's glory to give you blessings and to fix those problems in your life. But is your attitude when you come to him in prayer one of accepting what he gives as the best possible thing for you? Or are you asking like Jesus says not to, Father, fix it for me. I can't go into your mind, into your prayers, and figure out what you pray for. But as we all evaluate our prayers, I think we can find many prayers of fix it so that I can feel better, God. Maybe we could pray more often, Father, glorify your name. I may not want to have this conversation with this person because they've been obstinate and mean to me, but Father, glorify your name. I'm going to do this because it needs to be done. It's the right thing to do. Father, I, I might not like the things that I've done in my past. I might feel really guilty about them. And I know you forgive them, but I can't, I can't seem to forget them. So maybe pray instead of, of God, help me forget. God, help me use. Help me use those experiences to give wisdom to others. Whatever the prayer is, May our prayers always be ones that ask for God's name to be glorified. So that's Jesus' unexpected prayer. And the last point is his unexpected victory. Um, if you're taking notes and you haven't crossed it out yet, cross out call and write victory. That's the last point. Jesus says this, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So as we follow Jesus through the text, we can kind of get a dark, glum view of what the Christian life looks like, right? Like, we're supposed to be constantly giving of ourselves, doing the hard things, going through the hard moments, not asking God to make our life better, but asking him to glorify his name through us. It sounds difficult, right? And one of the beauties of God's word is God never challenges you like that without giving you a power source, right? He gives you the gospel to push you through those challenges that he offers. And so here's that gospel promise, the unexpected victory that Jesus offers. Um, you heard him say it. He said it's now time for the judgment. A judgment is a loaded term in our society. Um, we're very anti-judgment. We have judgment-free zones, right? It's interesting as we think about judgment— um, that having a judgment and, both, and not having a judgment are both bad things. And yet they are both the things that we look for when it comes to judgment. Um, let me explain this to you, and I, I have to be honest, I borrowed much of this from uh, a pastor I respect named Tim Keller. I think he lays this out really well for you. Um, there are some people in the world who want no judgment. 
you can't judge me, no one can judge me, there should be no judgment, I can do whatever I want. Okay? But then you're a purposeless litigator. Because constantly, you are your own attorney, trying to prove yourself justified in the court of public opinion. You're trying to get people to like you, trying to get people to notice you, trying to get people to value you, trying to show that you're not as guilty as people might think, not as bad as people might see you. Even if you don't think there should be any judgment, the fact that you had to tell me that you don't want to be judged shows me that you're still litigating. See, without judgment, there is no purpose. There's no one to tell you what is wrong or what is right. None of it matters. You just exist for a while in a purposeless existence until you die, and then purposelessness continues on after your death, so no one cares or remembers you at all. And so people react against this, right? They say, well, we can't not have judgments. We need to have judgment, right? And this is where you get uh, folks who say, this is the way you have to live, right? In order to be righteous, in order to be good with God. Uh, But interestingly, that judgment doesn't work either. Because obviously, God has an impossible standard, right? Uh, A standard of absolute perfection for us that we need to live up to, uh, or otherwise we die, both physically and spiritually. And so many people don't want that, so they they say, you know what, I just got to be a good person. Okay, well, let's walk down that logical path for a while. Um, What's your definition of a good person? Most people would probably say, well, how I want to be treated, okay? Act how I want to be treated, golden rule kind of stuff, right? Reasonable, until you realize that you don't keep that law at all, right? You have a lot of expectations of people. I want people to be honest with me. I want people to consider my feelings. I would really like if people were loyal to me. And yet every one of us has failed at even those low standards, right? We're not always honest with people. We're not always loyal to people. We don't always consider people's feelings. So if there is any judgment at all, even the lowest standard of our own judgment, none of us is going to live up. So what's the answer? If it's a completely judgment-free zone, then life is purposeless. And if it is a life with a judgment that is coming, then none of us will live up. Well, that's why Jesus' words are so beautiful. He says, now is the time for the judgment on the world. You know, it's very easy for Christians to remember that a judgment day is coming, right? At the end of the world, when Jesus comes back, all will be judged. But they forget that there's also a judgment day that's already happened. When Jesus died on the cross, the verdict was spoken. It is finished. It is paid for in full. There is no more punishment left to be poured out. And so the Christian, by faith, understanding who Jesus is and what he is doing when he dies on the cross, actually lives between two judgments. There is a judgment that is coming in the future, which requires us to live, to live with purpose, to live with grace, to live with love for other people. But there is also a judgment that has already passed, that is declared that we don't have to live up to this judgment in order to be saved. See, the beauty of the gospel is it's right between those two judgments. You you know, the way I think about it is uh, like hunkering down 
when a tornado is coming near? I tried to look, at, look up the last time a tornado came through Mississauga. I couldn't find it online. Maybe one of you can correct me. Um, but on our honeymoon, Johanna and I had a tornado pass near us. Um, it was the middle of the night. We were both sleeping, and suddenly both our fo- phone alarms went off. Tornado warning, right? Tornado possibly going through your area. So we turned on the TV. We watched the news, right? Watched the storm system as it started to circle and come near us. We got in the bathroom, sat down in the tub, and waited for it to pass. And thankfully, it, it actually didn't hit right by us. It hit a little bit of ways away from us. But it's a scary feeling, right? Terrifying. To sit in that condo and hope for the best. Hope that that inescapable, powerful force would not hit us. The gospel is the same kind of way. The judgment came, and the judgment was fully poured out on Jesus. And as you hunker down, hoping it wouldn't hit you, it passed by you and went on him. Jesus describes it like this. He says, um, all people are going to be drawn to me when I am lifted up, right? Now is the time for the judgment and for the prince to be driven out. What's he talking about? He's talking about that moment when all of God's wrath came down on him instead of you. And it was dark, and there was an earthquake, and the rocks split, and the curtain tore in two, but God's wrath did not come down on you. It came down on Jesus. Uh, Chris Powers, an artist that I really like, has a great picture that depicts this, of all of God's wrath coming down on Jesus instead of on you. This is where you live, on the other side of the judgment. Looking forward to the judgment that does not determine where you go, but simply enacts the sentence, which is that you are free to go, not guilty, and destined for heaven. So what's Jesus' unexpected victory? A life between two judgments. He offers you, by faith, the chance to believe that the judgment has passed over you and that your life is still purposeful until the final judgment when he comes back. Now, the people who hear this, they're a little incredulous, right? They don't understand it. They say, how can you say that the Son of Man is going to be raised up? Who is this Son of Man? What's this whole thing about? And I imagine that there's some people maybe here right now or who will listen to this later who are probably in the same boat. So what? Guy dies on a cross. Guy has some philosophical truths about where judgment happens, whatever. Why does it matter? Who cares? And I think if I was confronted with that, like somebody came to me and said, okay, you said all that stuff about Jesus, like, who cares? I would be very quick to like give you the whole logical outline, the treatise, biblical truths. Here's the point by point. This is how you get saved, right? But Jesus doesn't do that. He says, you're going to have the light only a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they're going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of the light. Jesus says, just keep listening. 
I'm not going to convince you with logic. I'm only going to convince you with love. I'm going to convince you by showing you again what I'm willing to go through for you. And you might not get it this time. But if you keep listening, the Holy Spirit will keep working on your heart. And then you'll start to walk in the light. And like a person who's in a pitch dark room but suddenly has a lamp go on, things will start to make sense. You start to be able to understand why people are the way that they are and why God is so gracious to all of them. Look, you might not understand why the gospel is so amazing and my sermon might not have been logical enough or well-pointed enough for you to get it, but I want you to keep listening. Keep looking at that light. Keep hearing that message. The light will only be here a little while longer until that second judgment comes to walk in that light. You know, the title of this sermon is Give Up Your Life, which maybe sounds a little bit intense if you don't know what Jesus is talking about. But the fact is that you're going to give up your life whether you like it or not. The question is, who are you going to give it up to? Are you going to give it up to the ground to live for your own passions and desires? Are you going to give it up to God to glorify his name, to live a life of sacrifice for other people? Because that's what Jesus did for you. Look, there are a lot of religions out there who will help you get better, help you get your karma right, help you earn forgiveness, help you live the life of victory. But biblical Christianity It's way better and so different. Because it pronounces to you that the judgment has already been made. The punishment has already been carried out. You're free to go. And you can live because Jesus died. You know, it reminds me of the old hymn. We don't sing it here, but uh, it goes like this. It says, sing my tongue the glorious battle. Sing the ending of the fray. Tell how Christ, the world's redeemer, as a victim, won the day. If that's your expectation of the Christian life, that God goes first and gives up his life for you, and that that means that life isn't always going to be victorious, it's going to be like carrying a cross all the time, you will find at the end a light of the gospel that will bring you into eternal life. I pray that for all of you. So give up your life. Give up every moment of your life in prayer, in worship, in service for the God who gave up everything for you. Let's pray about it. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving up your life for us, for glorifying God's name through your death. Lead us to live lives of sacrifice for those around us that we may always glorify your name as well. Amen. Take a moment to fill out the connect cards that we've given you in your uh, bulletin. This is a chance for our congregation to connect with you, to find ways that we can serve you, to give you that gospel message again and again, to love you with self-sacrificial love like Jesus did for us. The only way we're going to be able to do that is if we know who you are. And so if you would, 